welcome to the Granite State Gardening Podcast from UNH Cooperative Extension. On today's show, Emma and I speak with Nicole Keyes, the Greenhouse Manager at Lake Street Garden Center in Salem, New Hampshire. Our conversation is wide-ranging, including assessing your home's growing conditions, best growing practices, how to be a smart shopper, personal favorites, and predictions for hot foliage houseplants in 2021. By the end of this episode, I guarantee you'll be inspired to grow some new plants because Emma and Nicole's enthusiasm and knowledge just rubs off, and you'll have a few new tips and tricks for your next houseplant shopping outing to your favorite local garden center. Greetings, Granite State Gardeners. I'm Nate Burnitz, joined as always by horticulturist and UNH Extension field specialist Emma Erler, and today by Nicole Keyes. Nicole, I'm excited to hear some industry insider knowledge from you today, but I'd love to start by getting to know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I work at Lake Street Garden Center in Salem, New Hampshire. It's a small family-owned business. It's been open since the 70s. Uh, I'm born and raised from Salem, so I used to go there with my grandfather, um, like as a child, walking through the greenhouses. And um, when I was old enough to work, he, he knew the owner pretty well and kind of like gave me a little push and was like, go ask for a job um, because I, I knew I, I was interested in plants and I love the outdoors and I'm definitely a nature girl. So I started as a cashier there and just, I didn't even know the difference between a petunia and a philodendron back then. Just being there and and starting to learn, I, I really, my passion kind of developed. I've been there 18 years on and off through my life. So it's been a pretty cool journey. It's it's pretty unique that to be a part of a still like family run business. Well, I know Emma shares your passion for scientific names for, for the Latin. So let's start there. Why is that important? Well, I guess I'll say it's it's really important because common names can be misleading. Uh, it can be misguiding. There, in many cases, there are multiple different common names that can be applied to the same plant, and in some cases, two different plants will have the same common name. So, if you're using the Latin name, you're being as precise as you can possibly be, and any gardener. Um, any botanist that you're talking to is going to know exactly which plant you're speaking of and use that Latin name versus a common name. Because to a certain extent, that can really be regional as well with what people will call a, a certain plant. Nicole, do you find that customers sometimes come in and they're asking about one plant, but maybe thinking of another or like really kind of actually practical examples where this really comes into play? Absolutely. Um, I think it's something I deal with on a regular basis and and echo everything that Emma said. Um, It's a lot easier for me when a customer comes in knowing what plant plant they uh, they're that they're referring to. Um, And like I've noticed, too, that with the trends online today um, and like there's a lot of online sales going on all over the Internet and a lot of people are making up common names or coming up with cooler, more funky names for plants and customers will come in like, um, do you have devil's ivy? And I'm like, what's a devil's ivy? And it's actually 
Lothos and I've never heard it called Devil's Ivy in my life. And um, so like Google's my best friend today <laughs> when it comes to that. Um, I, I have to do a lot of research online um, to kind of keep up with the trends and also to be able to educate the customer when we do figure out what they're referring to, you know, the, the, the scientific name of the plant. And, um, and I've noticed too, a lot of the clientele that we have come in, they really do want to know, you know, they, they want to learn, they want to learn the, the actual names of the plants. And, and um, there's this, just this huge interest um, in foliage and house plants in general. Um, it's up and coming. It's just, it's, I'm excited to see it happen because um, it's, you know, it's what I love. But. So when someone is asking about something like devil's Ivy, is it that that's just a pure rebranding of something that's otherwise actually a pretty common plant or might that sometimes be referring to a new cultivar or is it some of both depending on the situation? It can definitely be both. Um, there's, there's a lot of new varieties. Um, you know, plants are getting hybridized and, and all the time. And so, um, I'm find myself like I have to keep up with um, the the different varieties of plants that um, are are being sold and marketed and um, and branding too is a is a huge thing um, because a plant that might be called like there's um there's a a brand uh, they're like angel plants and and it's a trademark and a customer will come in looking for that angel plants when really it could be a host of all different types of uh, terrarium plants and indoor foliage that are sold in these little cute pots by one company and they call them a certain thing like exotic angels and um and so i i have to kind of differentiate too and it, it happens not just with house plants either like in the spring um, it, when we buy things in, there's tags in these plants from all different sources and companies. And um, if they're not read, no, if they don't know how to read the plant tag um, properly, they they can think that they're calling the plant what it is when actually it's um, it's a trademark or a, a brand of the plant. Is there any standardization to what's on those labels? Uh, usually. Uh, they they all look different, but um, most of the time the Latin name of the plant is down at the bottom of the tag, um, and of course the brand or company will be in big beautiful bold letters across the top of it above the picture. So um, a lot of the times you have to, and sometimes even on the back you have to flip it over, and in little lettering at the bottom um, it says you know the the true Latin name of the plant. So yes. So we've got these really specific plants, sci scientific name, genus, species. But if we take a step back, Emma, what do you see as the broad categories within foliage houseplants? Gosh, you know what? A good question. I mean, broad categories, I'd say first off, I mean, you have vining plants. So Perhaps somebody's looking for something that's trailing, um, that has, you know, long stems, not necessarily twining, but something that that would have more of a, a drooping characteristic. Um, then you also have, you know, a whole broad variety of, of different foliage types um, and, and different plants within those categories. So, for example, I would probably include ferns in foliage plants and ferns are a class their own. 
then you've got a whole variety of different tropicals that have different needs. So there's a whole bunch of different really cool uh, house plants that are in this foliage plant group that are um, in the arum family, aeroids. So that's one group. And then you've got palms, like I mentioned, or I, actually I didn't mention palms before, but you've got palms and you've got all sorts of other interesting tropicals. Um, outside of that too, I mean, you could probably be considering some of the other flowering plants in this foliage plant group as well. Um, some orchids have really beautiful foliage and they're grown expressly for their foliage. Uh, and some of the bromeliads too are grown just for their foliage. Uh, it, we're unlikely oftentimes to actually get blooms on them indoors in our homes, but they can be really lovely. So foliage houseplants, that's really an artificial distinction that we're making, right? Maybe it's an industry distinction. It's certainly not an academic distinction. It's I think referring to plants that are sold primarily for their foliage as opposed to some other characteristic. Is that how you see it, Nicole? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it, it, my greenhouse at this point in time is kind of split between two. We have foliage plants, which are mostly, I mean, nowadays they're not just green. Um, foliage plants come in a host of beautiful colors, which is really cool. Um, but blooming and 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 non-blooming or foliage plants is is kind of like how I would generalize it. Um, yeah, and I guess um, what I would probably separate out there too are the succulents because it's they're different, um, totally different needs in many cases. And I, I think in some regards, succulents are maybe waning slightly in popularity just because a lot of people don't have the growing conditions they need in their homes in order to be able to grow them successfully. I agree, I agree with that. Um, I, I separate them entirely from everything else in the greenhouse because they they do need full direct feeding sunlight and to be run really dry. And a lot of the times customers will see pictures on Pinterest or um, in magazines with these beautiful succulent dish gardens, like sitting in the corner of a bathroom or in the middle of a um, living room on a coffee table in, in these really impractical situations, thinking that they can do that too. And I have to be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but and make other suggestions but um but yeah i've i've seen a spike in popularity in low light foliage plants and a little bit of a decline when it comes to um, cactus and succulents well you can't necessarily blame people because if you go into a store maybe it's a big box store or something else and they have succulents that are out for display and for sale in growing conditions that wouldn't support them long term, you might think, oh, okay, like you can grow them anywhere. They're with all of these other plants. I mean, you would have a better insider perspective on this, but I suppose you can have any plant in suboptimal growing conditions for some period of time, but eventually they need to be put into more optimal growing conditions. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah, I don't, I don't blame the masses. Certainly not. There's so much false advertising out there. I consider myself somewhat of a plant advocate <laughs> in the sense that uh, I, I, it drives me nuts sometimes when I see that and I'm always trying to, you know, be helpful and share my knowledge in that sense. Um, and um, 
I would say that in regards to placing plants in areas where it might not be optimal for them, um, plants are super resilient. And uh, a lot of the times they'll struggle for a long time before you can actually kill a plant. So um, there will be signs and symptoms that come up, um, but for a good while, when you get a plant home, it's, it's not gonna really tell you yet um, if, it, if it needs to be somewhere else. I think with the, um, you know, why people are so interested in, say, succulents and, and cacti is just because they are so different from anything you'd see growing in the wild in New Hampshire. And they're really unique, interesting forms. Um, when I first got really interested in plants as, as a little kid, that's exactly what I wanted to grow. I had a whole bunch of cacti. I had some jade plants, um, one of which I still have. And uh, yeah, I was lucky in that uh, my parents, at least at their house, had a really bright south-facing picture window that I was able to keep my plants in, and actually a little greenhouse where things could be in the summertime as well. So um, I, I feel like it's almost more of a refinement, I guess, for me to be branching out and looking at some more of these, some different plants and focusing more on foliage instead of just really interesting forms that succulents have. So you've both talked about how there's this trend towards, quote unquote, low light plants. Let's talk about low light. Are there any plants that actually thrive in low light or is it more of a tolerance? And what is meant by low light? Is low light just meaning that it's not direct sun? Does low light mean that it can be in a dark corner of a room what is the distinction between these plants that tolerate or thrive in low light, whatever you say there, versus a plant that has higher light requirements? I describe this all the time at my job because it, it, it's they really it's a um, there's a lot of confusion around um, low light, bright light, direct light, indirect light. Um, and, and so the way I usually describe it is plants that thrive in lower light, um, don't necessarily need to be up against a window, um, or, um, in necessarily a brightly lit room. There aren't really any plants that are going to thrive in no light, um, at all, but, um, certain plants like Sansevieria snake plant, um, uh, some philodendrons, pothos, uh, there's, there's quite a few, foliage type plants that will do well in the corner of a room or set into the middle of a room that may only have one or two windows and not get sun beating in. Um, bright light, in my opinion, would be um, still indirect. So not where the sun beats in and warms the area, but a room that's lit up throughout the day um, from natural light. Uh, so there are other types of plants that uh, sometimes get confused with lower light plants, but do need um, more indirect bright light, especially flowering house plants like um, begonias or orchids, um, bromeliads, and some types of foliar plants like ponytail palms and chiflera. Um, and sometimes some of those plants can tolerate a broad scale of, of that without really showing you um, you know, that it's too unhappy. So how do you help people evaluate their growing spaces and understand where something fits in? Like someone is looking at a north facing window and they just don't know, like, 
is this good for low light? Am I getting more than what I need here? Or a corner of the room that sometimes they just kind of walk by and notice that it's lit up, but it's not like they're standing there with a timer kind of keeping track of exactly how much light it's getting. Uh, is Are there some other pointers that you might have for evaluating the amount of light a particular space gets? Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of a quirky person, so I have these little phrases that I use sometimes because um, a customer will often think that they have full sun in their house when really it's just a, a lot of bright and direct light. So in differentiating that, I will usually use this phrase of where the kitty would lay, (laughs) like where the sun actually beats in in that little spot on the floor where it heats up. And and I'll say that directly because people understand that, you know, they can picture that one spot where like the kitty would snuggle. (laughs) So um, I use that oftentimes and it works pretty well. Um, Or I, I try to stray away from the directional um, usage as far as evaluating. I mean, it, it, it is a good rule of thumb. Um, but most of the time people don't really know which side of their house is North and South. And unless you sit with a compass and and figure it all out, um, I'm more of a visual learner myself. And so I'll, I'll prompt them with questions. Um, you know, between 10 and two is really the most intense, part of the day in regards to sunshine. So if they have a window that's lit up until only about say 10 or 11 o'clock, in my opinion, that's morning sun, that's bright indirect light. Um, So I kind of use time references with them um, and, and what it looks like in that room around that time to try and make suggestions of what plants might do well there. I'll say too that very few plants in my collection would actually show signs of stress or injury from being closer to a window than I have them. I mean, certainly cold in the wintertime can be an issue with having, if you have a drafty window, but in terms of light exposure itself, even my plants that will tolerate low light are usually happier if I can have them closer to the window as opposed to further away. Um, Probably the only real exception I'd say here is for things that that really like a, a lower light situation, um, I'm thinking of say like ferns. I probably wouldn't put my ferns in a really, um, dark place or sorry, in a really bright place, like a Southern facing window, um, where it would get really warm. But other than that, uh, oftentimes when I move my other house plants outdoors in the summer, and, yeah, my low light to touch plants, on that their too, summer vacation is getting to move a little bit closer is, to the windows. Um, the sun is lower in the winter than it is in the summer. So if you if you get all these foliage plants in the winter, or you're, you're you know you're exploring house plants for the first time, say now. Um, and you have these plants in an area, just like you said, Emma, um, the sun's actually going to change as to where the intensity is in your house. Um, and so your plants might need to move around in the, in the summer and take a little vacation. I like how you put that. Um, my, I have a, a big window in the kitchen um, where I have all my little succulents. Um, and then they have to go over into the living room uh, in the summer because the, the sun is totally different uh, in those two spots. Do different houseplants have different temperature requirements or are pretty much all that plants sold and advertised as house plants going to tolerate general and typical household temperatures? I find that 
Temperature really only is an issue um, below, say, 55 degrees. Um, most plants, 55 and up, unless it's a, you have wood stove, really hot, dry house. Um, if there's a vent, a heat vent blowing in a certain area, those are types of temperatures that are more extreme that could negatively affect the plants that you have there. Um, and then there also on the other end, there are certain plants that um, through fall and winter do like a cooler period, um, like flowering cyclamen is a big popular flowering um, plant for um, Christmas time. And they actually prefer cool temperatures or like a drafty window. Um, and especially at night, they, they like to be about 10 degrees cooler um, and they do a lot better uh, in, in that kind of setting. Um, and then there are plants that like a lot of people are into growing fruiting figs, um, edible fig. And what they don't realize is figs go dormant. Um, so they lose all their leaves in September and they're just these sticks and people think their figs have died. Um, and they really want a cool dormancy period. So they want to be put in, um, you know, a garage or a basement, they don't need much light, um, a little bit of water here and there. And they instinctually, when the days start lengthening, they'll actually push their leaves out and start growing. And then you can eventually after frost, get them outside. But um, so there are specific things um, for certain niches of, of plants, but um, for the most part, I will say that um, ficus benjamina, weeping ficus, they're finicky when it comes to anything drafty or too hot or too they just like shed all their leaves if they're unhappy um but what most people don't realize is the plant's not actually dead and those guys can completely defoliate and then push new growth in a pretty short amount of time um if you're watering it properly so you talked about a few examples most of them were non-foliage plants like fig or fl flowering cyclamen you did give the one example of the ficus but generally it sounds like foliage houseplants are pretty accommodating of normal household temperatures i think sometimes people ask about temperature because they might be confusing temperature with humidity in new england warmer temperatures mean higher humidity so people may be associating the two i was speaking with someone a couple days ago who I think was making that exact assumption. They were th thinking that because I was recommending higher humidity for their ferns, they thought the solution was just to increase the temperature. Yeah, not the same thing there, although you're right. The uh, air can hold more moisture when it is warmer um, versus when it's cooler. So if your home is warmer and you have some source of humidity, whether that means a, a pebble tray near your plants or whether that means actually having a humidifier, you are able going to be able to keep that, that um, humidity up a little bit more. Humidity is, is really important when it comes to um, growing house plants. There are certain things that I frankly can't grow in my house because I don't have a humidifier and I, I don't go out of my way to increase the humidity around plants. Uh, I have tried many times to be able to grow prayer plant and uh, they just really don't like my home and I, I'm not helping them out because the humidity is too low. Um, like you mentioned with the uh, the trailing ficus though, 
a lot of times they will my my prayer plant will come back it'll look terrible all winter and then when it gets warmer in the summer it will start to look a little bit better but um it's not the most attractive plant to have in my home in the winter months I, I'm laughing to myself over here when you talked about prayer plant because anything in the Calathea family and Maranta family in general, they just, I'm the same way. I'm not going to, I mean, a pebble tray is pretty easy. I noticed you mentioned that and just for, for people listening that don't know what that is, um, you can actually take a saucer and put a layer of rock or gravel in the saucer and fill it up with water just to the rock and and set the plant there so the plant's not actually setting in the water but the water is evaporating up around the general area of the plant and it will raise the relative humidity um, for the plant itself uh and i i'm i have so many plants and i just if, if i if i put it where it won't, needs to go and if it's not going to do its thing i just grab a new plant because i have the leisure to do that with my profession but um I have one calathea in my bathroom that's a little little brown around the edges, but it's it's doing okay and it's pushed new leaves and it's not super happy, but that's the most humid place I have in my house. Um, and to match the lighting in that room with the humidity is I had to find the, the the correct plant for it. But it's a it's a calathea uh, mosaica, which is has this really cool patterning that almost looks like pixelated. Um, it's it's a really neat plant, but so I was attached to having it no matter what. So that is the one. But um, other than that, I I can't keep them alive for the life of me. It's what I do <laughs> for a living. <laughs> Houseplant pests don't stand a chance when Rachel Massini spots them. And as UNH Extension's Pesticide Safety Education Coordinator, she knows you can't control what you don't scout. Now for Rachel's Integrated Pest Management, IPM for short, featured tip. One of the most prevalent pests of houseplants are the aphids. These are small, soft-bodied, pear-shaped insects that seem to come from nowhere. They prefer to feed on the new growth of the plants by inserting their mouth parts into the plant and extracting the plant juices. This feeding often results in yellowing and misshapen leaves. In addition, the growth of the plant may be stunted and new developing plant buds are often deformed. Also, as aphids feed, they excrete a sugary substance we call honeydew. This makes the plant's leaves shiny and sticky. This honeydew becomes a medium for a fungus called sooty mold to grow, which creates unsightly dark splotches on the plant's surfaces. With minor infestations of aphids, you can hand pick, you can spray with water, or you can wipe the insects with a cotton swab dipped in rubbing alcohol. If there is a major infestation, a pesticide may be warranted. What are some other techniques for increasing the humidity in your home or at least in a particular area of your home to support plants? And can you give some more examples of house plants kind of across the spectrum from plants that don't have humidity requirements and will tolerate pretty much anything, even the driest conditions in your house in the wintertime, to the plants that are maybe the most finicky and really only for houseplant enthusiasts that are planning on taking significant steps 
to support their humidity requirements? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I can speak, I, there's, there's certain plants that, um, you know, we sell pretty regularly and I, and I have tried to um, broaden our inventory um, as I've, as I've been in charge uh, of the greenhouse department at Lake Street. So I'm more keen to know about certain plants and there may be some that I'm, I'm just not as familiar with, but um, it definitely um, it, for dry and arid, obviously cactus and succulents, we, we mentioned um, do okay. Um, Schifflera I've found, it's also called umbrella tree. Um, they tend to, be pretty tolerant of uh, drier house settings. Uh, there's quite a few. It seems like it, there there's there's less that that need that that higher humidity than than um, others. Uh, so air plants is a is another one of those categories we were talking about. Tillandsia um, that is really popular now, and um, they're. They're cute little plants that don't need soil and you can tuck them in all kinds of things and put them in glass and put them in vases and put them in your bathroom and hang them everywhere. But um, the only way that they absorb the water that they need is through a very fine mist or humidity um, in the air. They have these tiny, tiny little hairs all over them and that's how they absorb. You can actually soak them um, underwater and submerge them, which is what I usually recommend people do when they buy them from me because of the fact that they, they, they're not necessarily in the human requirements that they need. Um, so you're kind of giving them what they need in a, in a dose of a, a, a bath for an hour once, once or twice a week. Um, another thing that I try to um, decipher with customers is if they're just using a regular squirt bottle um, oftentimes the droplets are, are not a fine enough mist for the plant to actually absorb. So there's a lot of recommendations that I'm seeing online in forums and, and, and websites and things of misting, 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 misting. Um, and it, you're not really doing too much because those, those big droplets are going to evaporate faster than your plant is going to absorb them. Um, we do sell, um, there's, there's certain misters you can get that are floral grade and, and are more of a fine mist. Um, and, and misting can definitely help with certain things uh, like Calathea, we were talking about prayer plant, um, air plants, uh, bromeliads, I think are another one that like that really humid um, environment. Uh, Emma, is there anything else you can think of and add to? I'd say outside of the misting, because I think a lot of times misting for most people probably isn't going to be adequate for really increasing humidity around plants. Because unless you're home all day and getting up and misting the plant, let's say every 15 minutes, the air is still going to be pretty darn dry. And most of us aren't going to do that, right? I know I won't. I'll maybe think of it once a day. And that's not nearly enough. So if you're really trying to grow a lot of things that that do like higher humidity I, I think it it's probably worthwhile to actually get a humidifier and to set that up in the room where you have those plants uh, nearby you don't want necessarily moisture to be collecting on the leaves of the plants and if it's a humidifier that's that's sending out hot steam you also don't want that to be hitting foliage 
but you do just you want that air to have more of a humid feel and then there are certain things that just really appreciate more of a greenhouse environment uh, for a lot of tropicals that do really need that humid environment because they're they're from um you know a really wet um rainforest environment probably looking at 70 80 percent humidity um you know, maybe even 90%. Uh, whereas in our home, so probably the best we're going to get is maybe 50%. So that's um, in a bathroom. Yeah, probably in a bathroom with a humidifier set up nearby in the winter months. It's probably going to be more likely closer to, to 30 if you are in a home with, the, you know, the furnace running, um, wood stove going. But I I think that's, you know, like we've already touched on, I think it just helps to to recognize what the conditions are in your home and, and pick things that aren't going to be real fussy. Uh, and I think that's where it's helpful to talk to the staff at the garden center you're going to, where you're going to pick up a plant and and just be frank about what the conditions are like in your home. I see there being somewhat of a spectrum where maybe on the lowest end, we're talking about a place in your home that not only is not humid, but also maybe next to a radiator, just getting pounded with hot, dry air. And then you go to just a normal spot in your home. It's not humid in any special way, but it's also not getting hit with that dry heat. And then maybe your kitchen right above your sink, there might be a little bit more humidity in your bathroom. There might be a little bit more humidity depending on how often people are showering and stuff like that in the house. And then for the enthusiasts, you might be adding a humidifier into the mix or even some sort of more managed growing chamber. Do you see a lot of houseplant enthusiasts actually going to that level and going beyond just conditions that they can create in their house and really introducing managed conditions with terrariums and other enclosures? Yes. And more so, I think, in the past six or seven months than ever before. Um, I, I, There are a lot of people coming in talking about... Um, you know, indoor greenhouses and um, plant shelves and uh, people are, are home now. You know, a lot of people are in their house and and they want um, plants because I, I, I think it's actually like an instinctual thing that we're coming into this trend because uh, us as a society, we're spending so much more time in the house and there's like this craving for nature, right? And, um, and so people just want that atmosphere in their home. I can't tell you how many times I've had customers come in and say, I'm making a home office now and I want plants for it. It's a, it's a pretty common thing, um, recently. And, and a lot of, um, plant enthusiasts that, that we, we do have a lot of regular customers, um, and really cool plant people that come in and and they have this whole setup in their house with the humidifier and the grow lights and and the whole nine yards and um and so yeah i do see a lot of that we don't sell that level of equipment at lake street so i'm there just to help help them you know pick out what what they've got and and decipher what they're doing but a lot of people are are pretty self-informed um when it comes to this stuff and and um and very, very enthusiastic about their house plants and taking care of them perfectly. 
I, I wanted to touch on something that Emma had said about her goldfish plant. It just made me think, and this is kind of relative to what we we're talking about. She, she had described how in the winter, her goldfish plant loses some of its leaves. It doesn't look necessarily the most beautiful. And then in the summer, it's lush, it's full, it pushes new growth. And um, that's the case kind of with a lot of different plants is it's okay sometimes to lose a leaf or two here and there. Um, sometimes things defoliate and then regrow. Um, it, plants are just like us, you know, and, and, and they're definitely not perfect. And uh, uh, sometimes I get, I get a lot of people who like one brown leaf and they come in like my plant is dying and, and I'm like, it's okay. I can help you. <laughs> We're that. Um, I have customers take pictures, email me, um, you know, describe what's going on, bring in a leaf in a bag if they think that there's some type of disease or insect. Um, but a lot of the times it's, um, it's pretty regular to have uh, some level of, um, uh, I don't want to call it ugliness because plants are awesome, but um, that defoliation or browning leaves or a little bit of brown tips on the end, um, especially when it comes to not having the perfect conditions because most of these plants are tropical and they are from rainforests and we live in new england <laughs> and uh and we're trying to keep them in a tiny little pot in our house to admire so it's, it's definitely something to consider um that it's okay and uh and a lot of the times they'll they'll survive even though they're they're not thriving at the moment and there may be certain times in the year where they they do better than others I appreciate the houseplant positivity. I guess it's like if you find a gray hair or have some lower back pain or have a headache or something, it's not the end of the world. It's it's okay. I'll note too that anybody who's been keeping houseplants for a long time has probably killed a lot of houseplants as well. I have certainly killed enough houseplants um, in the years I've been keeping them and uh, through a lot of that, I've learned um, not only just from the mistakes I've made with those certain plants. I mean, I've learned more about what they actually need, um, and I've, you know, frankly learned which things are going to be able to survive in the conditions I can give them in my home, and uh, what plants are going to tolerate the the care that I can provide. Um, I'm I'm one of these more negligent waterers, so I will often water less than my plants would probably prefer. And so I've, I figured out, you know, exactly what's going to tolerate my schedule. I'm the exact same way with my house plants. They, they just barely survive sometimes. <laughs> also during the busy season, my house plants take a hit because I'm, I'm uh, at the greenhouse most of the time. Um, but it's actually, especially in the winter, it's almost a benefit to be a light-handed waterer. Um, the number one killer of houseplants, from what I've seen in this industry, is overwatering. It's just too much love, and and um, and oftentimes customers will think the plant is drying out to the level it needs to because it looks that way from the top. Um, but really, those last few inches of soil in that pot make a huge difference. And um, and being an underwaterer is uh, more beneficial to your plants than than an overwaterer for sure. A plant's going to come back a lot quicker from from being a little too dry um, than it ever will be from from overwatering and and rotting. 
Emma, from a scientific academic perspective, can you explain and demystify why overwatering leads to plant suffering? From a common sense perspective, it almost doesn't make sense, but we see it time and time again that plants do suffer from overwatering. What is actually happening there? So we know that plants are taking water up through their roots, right? So it would seem like, yeah, more would be better. Um, but really what's also happening with plant roots is that they're also taking in oxygen. Um, the top part of a plant is doing photosynthesis, all those green parts. And you probably know that plants take in carbon dioxide and then release oxygen. So the top part of the plant is using limited oxygen only when it switches over to that burning energy phase of respiration. But that's solely what's happening in roots, respiration. So oxygen needs to be able to get into the root system of the plant. When we water too much, basically what we're doing is drowning the roots. The plant is not getting the oxygen it needs. And um, in, in many cases, you, you kill the plant just by doing that alone, by drowning it. There's also the potential when you're creating this overly wet environment that you're going to have issues with actual you know, fungal pathogens and um, experience rot and decay in those roots. So too much is not a good thing, um, you know. Same, same for anything else, I guess, whether it's with people, animals. I mean, there's a limit. So getting the watering right is what you need to do. Now, all this being said, there are plants that are adapted, obviously, to live in the water. Um, usually, we're not growing those indoors. These would be things that you'd be putting more into like a pond situation or maybe even growing in a, a fish tank or something similar. Um, not that you couldn't grow them indoors. We, we just don't usually do it. Um, but most of the, the terrestrial plants that you're going to be growing, things that you're going to be picking up at the greenhouse are not going to appreciate too much water. Being lighter with the water is important. What are the other factors besides actually how often you're watering on whether plants are going to suffer from overwatering? I'm thinking possibilities might include the potting mix that you're using how much water it's retaining, how well it's draining, and maybe the container you're using too. What do you think about that, Nicole? Yeah, all of those um, things you listed are, are definitely factors. Um, as far as a, a potting medium um, or a, a potting soil that you're using, you definitely want to look for um, something that's nice and light and fluffy. Like Emma said, roots need gas exchange. We don't usually... Um, I wouldn't necessarily think that, um, but when I first learned that when I was being trained as a waterer, it, it finally made sense to me. You know, when you open that bag of potting soil, you want to be able to dive your fingers right in there. If it takes two hands for you to pick up that bag of potting soil, you might want to reconsider the brand that you're buying. Perlite, those little white specks in your potting soil, it's actually pumice stone. Um, it creates those little spaces, those air pockets that roots need. Um, and then, you know, there's other plants that don't, that might need more specific uh, soil medium, like orchids um, want to be in a bark mixture. Um, they're epiphytes, they grow on trees naturally. So when we stuff them in a pot, we need to accommodate them in, in some way. <laughs> and um, the size of the container is huge. I see... Um, 
a lot of people, they see a plant they really like and they come in looking for it and they already have a pot picked out because they love the pot. The pot is pretty and it matches their house and but that pot might not necessarily be the correct size for the plant that we have that you want or that you're buying. So um, I, plants, they're, uh, especially in the winter, they, I, they, they like to be a little more root bound, um, a little tighter in the pot. Um, if you're buying a plant, say a four inch or a six inch plant, those are common sizes that are sold all over. Um, you don't want to bump it up into anything bigger than say a six or an eight inch, two inches bigger. Um, I, I, if you, if you, the more soil you have, the more moisture you have, the more chance you have of, of killing that plant. That's kind of how I put it, um, in layman's terms to customers. Um, the type of container too, I, um, I keep all my plants in my house in the plastic grower pots. And if I want a pretty pot, I'll find one that I can set that plastic pot into. Um, I, I water a lot of my plants at the sink and then put them back um, where they are just for the sake of not having saucers everywhere and just the setup that I have. Um, it's not really necessary, but that's kind of how I do things. But I, I find the plastic, uh, it's aerated at the bottom. It allows the plants to dry out the, how they need to. Um, next level up would be terracotta, um, like non-glazed clay, um, and then glazed pottery uh, dry. It's, it, it takes a plant, a plant a lot longer to dry out, say in a, a clay pot that's glazed because it's not porous, um, especially if it's glazed on the inside or all the way up the rim. Um, and so you, you want to take that into consideration. And it goes without saying that you need drainage holes on the bottom. There are a lot of pots that are sold that don't have drainage holes. So I guess that might be useful if you're tucking that plastic pot into it, but I recently learned how to drill holes into pots using a hollow drill bit. It worked really well. So buying cheap pots, and they're partially cheap, I think, because they didn't have holes in the bottom, and putting holes in myself, that worked really well. I, I've never, we don't have one of those bits, but I sort of wish we did, because the sales manager oftentimes will buy lots of pottery, and, and they're really cool pots, but sometimes they do come without drainage. And I take advantage sometimes of of what I know um, in in just general knowledge as far as plant care. But yes, holes in the bottom of your pot is definitely necessary. Um, you want that water to drain out the bottom. Um, and there are, if, if, if you're a little more comfortable, you have had plants before and you know that you're, you're a pretty good waterer, you can manipulate any pot um, to accommodate your plant. You can put um, gravel in the bottom of your pot where the water will catch. You can learn how much to put in your plant so it just goes to the bottom um, and, and doesn't necessarily spill out. Um, there's, there's tricks to you know, if you're really attached to a pot and you consider yourself a little more um, experienced waterer. I'm glad you brought up the gravel at the bottom because that's a question I think that a lot of people have is can you create that drainage layer at the bottom? My concern would be that the potting mix might end up just clogging at the bottom, sort of getting into that gravel and potentially stopping water from draining. Is my concern founded? Might that 
be true for sand or something else? I mean, there's all sorts of things that you could potentially put at the bottom, but is that going to work or what's your take on that, Emma? I'd be more concerned about just overflowing that reservoir. So you have those stones at the bottom or the sand at the bottom, and you have no way of knowing exactly how much water is is down there at that level. So I, I would be more concerned that I, I, that that space, all those pore spaces between the stones, it's already full, but the potting mix at the top is looking like it's it's kind of dry, so I put more water in there. Um, I, I've never personally had a whole lot of luck with, with pots that, that don't have drainage. I, I have a few actually really nice glazed pots that don't have drainage that I've had for years. And I, I've tried a number of different plants in them and I've, I found it's just, it's really hard to get it quite right. Um, for me anyways, I, I don't think I ever quite figured it out. <laughs> Please excuse the interruption. It's time for this episode's featured question. How to fertilize houseplants. Fertilizing houseplants is something that is often overlooked. Many foliage plants are relatively slow growing and have fairly low nutrient requirements, but they still need a fertilizer boost periodically for healthy growth. Most potting mixes contain few, if any, nutrients. So if your plants are looking pale or developing smaller than average leaves, then it's probably time to fertilize. Which fertilizer works best depends on what you're growing. Different fertilizers contain various percentages of the three essential macronutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. In general, foliage houseplants grow best with fertilizers that are high in nitrogen, whereas flowering houseplants grow better with a higher phosphorus source. There are many specialty houseplant fertilizers that work quite well for specific plants. However, a balanced fertilizer, such as 10-10-10 or 20-20-20, is usually suitable for the majority of common plants. One thing I would avoid is organic fertilizers for houseplants. Not only can these products be smelly, but they require a soil microbial community to make their nutrients available to plants, something that potting mix simply doesn't have. Finally, I'll close by saying that it is important to carefully read the fertilizer label and apply only as directed. Too much fertilizer can actually damage plants. Also, you should only fertilize when your plants are actively growing, usually the spring through the fall, giving it a rest over the winter. Interruption excused, Emma. So, Nicole, what shopping tips do you have for our listeners for the next time they go to their local garden center and want to pick up healthy plants that will thrive in their homes? Uh, So educating yourself on the most common pests um, of houseplants, I think, would be the first step. Um, Spider mite is a very, very common one um, and webbing, any type of webbing between uh, the nodes, which would be where the leaf meets the stem um, or over the, the leaf itself uh, is, a, is definitely a, a no-no. It's a, it's a sign that there's, there might be some insect damage going on. Um, looking for um, 
mealybug is another one. Um, it's little and white and fluffy and it kind of looks like mold. And sometimes these guys can just be little tiny white fluffy specks and you don't really know what you're looking at. Um, but Googling images of these things, I think, um, because it, it, coming from, I sell a lot of different types of plants in one small, one area, you know, and these, these pests are going to happen and we do the best that we can to um, practice an integrated pest management program and be on the ball um, when, when we get things in, scouring over, making sure that there's, there's no little bad guys on there um, and treating them as well. Um, but it's going to happen, you know, it, it, to some extent. And so... Um, I, I think we pride ourselves at Lake Street on, on keeping our, our plants pretty clean. Um, but insects are, are definitely something you want to look for. Fungus gnat is another one that's really popular if plants are getting overwatered consistently. Um, fungus gnat can, can, is soil borne. Um, and then they, if you rustle the plant or go to pick it up and these little flies come out, you know, that, um, those guys can spread pretty quickly and you can have a problem on your hands uh, in the house. Um, looking for um, a nice lush green foliage, um, anything chartreuse, uh, or if you can see kind of veining in leaves of foliage plants, um, they're usually lacking nitrogen or, um, you know, deficient in some way, um, which can be rectified, uh, but they might not be in the, in the, in tip top condition and looking for new growth, um, I think is a big one too. Um, it checking that plant and seeing, you know, wherever the, the new leaves are pushing out is, is there nice, healthy new growth on, on the plant that you're buying? Um, if there's a whole table of plants and you're, you don't know which one to pick, um, shape, uh, branching, um, nice full plants, and and especially the the new growth. Looking um, to see that that new growth is pushing is is something you you want to check for as well. I'll often try to take a peek at the roots too. Sometimes that might mean just looking at the underside of that pot through the drainage holes. And I, I would ideally like to see roots that look white or more of a, a cream color that are nice and healthy. If I'm seeing just kind of shriveled looking brown roots on the bottom, it's probably a sign there's been some root decay from overwatering and that that plant is going to struggle along for a while if it if it does survive what exactly do you do with a plant that has at some point suffered from overwatering and potentially some root rot is that something that plants can come back from and how can you help them or are you having to actually prune roots at that point trying to cut out decaying roots or will those roots potentially heal on their own? So the damaged roots aren't going to heal, um, but you could potentially get new healthy roots. If there are still existing healthy roots on that plant, you could get healthy new growth expanding from those roots. First thing I would do is just totally cut back on watering. Um, and if you're using a pot that doesn't have a drainage hole, or if it's something that's been in the same pot for years, let's say five or more years, it's possible that drainage hole has gotten clogged up. So repotting it can be helpful. Um, but I have a pothos right now that was given to me that 
decidedly had some root rot going on when I got it. Um, but it is starting to push some new growth because it is on my watering schedule now. So watering is, is very light in those healthy roots that were still on the plant. I think of they're, they're still there and I've gotten some new growth um, expanding from those roots too. Another thing too um, is downsizing the pot sometimes. Um, when customers come in and show me pictures, I can usually um, decipher uh, that it's an overwatering issue. And if you, if you take that, if you go to repot it or just to even see what the roots are and most of the soil falls away and you have this tiny little root ball in this pot where fit into um, downsizing the pot into some fresh soil and getting it on a new watering schedule will will help push healthy root growth as well when you talk about a watering schedule how do you think about that and plan for a watering schedule for your plants is that something where you're watering when that you know that the plants need water or are you potentially able to at some point figure out that a plant needs water every week or every 10 days or whatever it is? How do you really lock that in? I think using my five senses or some of the senses anyways, maybe not taste, <laughs> but, but um, smell sometimes, you know, you can smell some dank soil. Um, but I, I would say that that's the best way to do it with your plants individually, because um, most of the time people want things that are convenient. Um, and so they want to water on Wednesday when they're home or on one day a week. And oftentimes you have plants in different size pots that need different watering requirements. Um, so I'll actually take the customer's plant that they want to buy and I'll show them how you can Brace the plant with your hand and tip it over and pull that pot off the bottom. And you can actually see that the top might look dry, but further down, you still have moisture. So if they bring the plant home and they water it and they put it where it wants to go, every few days or so with this new plant, they can check and they can see, um, you know, how, how far it's gone, um, how much that soil has dried out. Um, obviously different plants want to dry out to different levels, which you would want to educate yourself on when you buy the plant. Um, but vi visually when I teach girls, um, how to water in the greenhouse too, uh, that's another, um, another thing that I do is I, as I have them pull off that pot and see, because usually most often it will look dry on top and it's not ready yet. <laughs> checking out the soil w would be a big one. Yeah. I would say I don't really have a true schedule when it comes to watering. I would say I pull out the watering can a couple of times a week that first pass through. I'm not watering everybody. Uh, might be just half of my plants actually need water. So those will get watered and everybody else gets left alone for the time being. And then if I, you know, come through again before I disappear for the weekend, I, I might be watering some of those same plants again and maybe some of the ones that got left out before. So it's it's really just based on plant need rather than saying I need to do this once a week. Every Tuesday my plant gets water. Um, it's... Really, you just need to uh, work on your observational skills, feeling the soil, taking a look at it, maybe at some point letting that plant get almost to the point of wilting so that you know um, what that looks like and what the potting mix feels like when it's that dry.
I want to get your predictions. Emma, I'm not sure if you have predictions or not, but if if you do, go for it. But Nicole, I know you have predictions. What are the plants that you think are going to be especially popular this year? The plants that you've noticed have been growing in popularity or you think are going to be growing in popularity very soon? Yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot. Um, I've, I've worked at Lake Street a long time, and I will say I used to never be able to sell snake plant, and now I cannot keep snake plant on my table. <laughs> um, there's so many cool varieties. There's cylindrical snake plant, which is rounded. There's, um, you know, uh, different variegations of snake plant, and, um, and Sansevieria is, is 10 times more popular than it ever has been. Um, so that's definitely one. Um, philodendron um, in any species, especially anything variegated. Um, philodendron birkin is one that's really hot right now. Um, Monstera deliciosa, Monstera um, adansonii, which is sometimes called Swiss cheese vine that has that kind of serrated leaf to it, but more vining and smaller than the deliciosa. Um, People are just becoming philodendron collectors. It's it's kind of a um, a thing now. <laughs> and every I get calls every week of Do you have this type, that type? And and I wish that I had more of a source, but I I do the best I can to get in. But we have had Birkin in. Um, we do have Adansonii and Deliciosa, um, and so. Uh, those uh, also another type of pothos Cebu blue is one that's become more popular um it has this really beautiful silvery blue foliage and it's not your typical heart-shaped leaf um but it's one of those plants that Emma was talking about that kind of spills over um and it's I'm a big fan um of the Cebu I I have one and and I love it um People are also, I would say, um, orchid cactus. I've noticed an up and coming trend in, especially fishbone um, orchid cactus, which has a, sometimes called rickrack is an old common name for it. Rickrack cactus. It has, uh, it, it looks like a bone. It's really cool. It has these big lobes and it flowers. Um, and I've I've had more people at call, like we've had people calling and asking and we've propagated more of that um, because of the prediction that that's going to be more popular. A string of hearts is another one that I can only, I, it's a, it's not the most vigorous grower. So we can only put out as much as we can and propagate and then it's gone. <laughs> and I, I'm bringing in like a tray at a time and it disappears. And, and so that's one that I, I can't even keep in there. Another one that, um, We've had the mother plant for a while and we just never really propagated it because it, it, I, I don't know. I, I noticed it a few months ago down there for the first time, but we've, we've had it for a while. It's uh, in the Sissus family and it's called Parthenocissus amazonica or jungle vine. Um, it has these almost similar to an angel wing begonia. It has these elongated um, wing shaped leaves uh, with like a reddish maroon underside and a silvery foliage. And it is a little different in the sense that it doesn't need direct sunlight, but it's actually a climber. So it does send out runners that will cling on, unlike pothos and, and most philodendron um, that 
just our bridal veil. There's other ones that just kind of spill over the pot. This one will actually climb if it has something to cling on to. Um, and so we've started propagating those. And that's another one that is just flying off the shelves. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool plant. Um, Tradescantia too. Um, I also known as Wandering Jew. Um, there's some really neat hybrids that have come out like Nanook, which is, has this like light pink and green variegation and the underside of the leaf is like purple, like a, a color shade that you wouldn't think would be natural to a plant. It's, I, I, I have one, I love it. My room's purple, I'm a purple girl. So I, and then Tradescantia rainbow is another one. It has this cream and purple and greenish variegation, uh, really funky and, and awesome. But any of the trads, I have like nine different species of Tradescantia. I have a whole Tradescantia table, which is a first for me in Lake Street Garden Center history. Um, so that one's really cool too. Uh, what about you, Emma? Oh gosh. I mean, I, I feel like I've been seeing a lot of Hoyas around as well as being pretty popular and, uh, a good choice if you don't mind waiting a long time or don't mind a plant that will just kind of sit around and not do a whole lot, which I think can be fine. Um, that's kind of how the, the snake plants are too, where they're, they're not going to grow you know, very quickly, but you're going to have something that's, that's pretty hardy, hard to kill. Um, one of my favorite plants that I have right now is my, uh, cast iron plant, uh, Aspidistra. It's really attractive, um, really more of kind of an old fashioned vibe, but it's, it tolerates the low light condition I have it in. Um, doesn't mind the soil being on the drier side. So I, I'm hoping to see more of that plant around because I, I do think it's it's worthy of, of being a part of this this new foliage plant craze. I, uh, I actually had a hard time getting those in this year, which has never been the case for me. We, we order a lot of foliage from Florida at the end of our, you know, spring growing season. Um, when, when summer's fading into fall, we, we try to vamp up the greenhouse for winter sales. And um, it wasn't on the availability at all. And usually I'll get six in and they can't sell them all winter. And we actually had customers calling this year asking for for cast iron. And it's called that for a reason, for sure. That plant is pretty, I won't say indestructible, but, um, it can, it can tolerate a wide range of, um, conditions, uh, that, yeah, it is, that is a cool plant. I think one of my favorites, I'm a begonia girl anyways. I love all begonia. Me and my, my boss too, the owner of Lake Street, we, when it, when it, when spring hits between angel wings and dragon wings and tuberous begonia, we just, we do too much. <laughs> He's like more. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> or I'm always trying to look for different colors. I just, we, we have an affinity for begonias, both of us. So we share that, but um, dragon, I'm sorry, angel wing begonias right now, the maculatas, um, are, are hot. They're, they're definitely, we have a, a mother plant that we've had for, um, almost 30 years. It's, a, a begonia coccinia, uh, an orange blooming variety. And it has that angel wing type leaf with the silver spotting on it and this bright orange clusters of flowers. And uh, we usually sell it as a shade hanger in the spring. And 
I kind of saw this trend up and coming and I asked our grower to propagate um, some of it. And it, I, it's, it was a good prediction is <laughs> uh, they're, they're going like crazy and um, angelings. And I would say a butylon, I think is an underrated winter flowering houseplant. I mean, it will actually flower most of the year if it's happy and has proper fertilizer conditions, but um, it's, it, they call it flowering maple because the shape of the leaf, it has nothing to do with the um, maple family, but um, it has this really cute, um, like pendulous flower that hangs, almost looks like a little like fairy skirt and they come in yellows and pinks and I'm, I'm a big fan of training standards. So like, I like to take a plant that would normally be a bush and try and turn it into a tree. Um, it's like a nerdy fun thing that I like to do. And Immunilon are really easy to actually do that. You can pick away all the foliage and just leave this little ball at top. And if you keep picking away all that foliage on that main stalk uh, and get rid of all the others, you'll get this nice little round head and this cute little tree. So um, I think that's why I love them so much. But Would you say for houseplant customers, there's a particular time of year where you're going to have access to the best variety and selection at your local garden centers? Are there for Lake Street and for other garden centers, I assume that the trends and timing are relatively similar like is winter a really good time to buy or some other time of year? So usually um, after the we start slowing down with um, our annuals and vegetable sales, um, spring flowering items and stuff, basically when there's space in the greenhouse, um, which is usually around August, uh, that's when I'll start looking at bringing in some foliage plants. Um, even it can still be a little hot um, and the sun can be really intense in there. So I have to be careful at the end of the summer. Um, but I'm usually bringing in three or four shipments um, from Florida anywhere between August and October. Um, so fall and, and throughout and, and and calling and checking and asking is something that you can definitely do too. you know, inquiring when, if, and when you're getting new shipments of houseplants is something, you know, it's a question we get often. I would imagine too, having customers tell you what they're looking for, giving you a, a call, talking to you, you know, at your business is helpful for you as well in terms of planning. It does. I, I will say, though, that the trends come and go so quickly that it, what's popular now in three weeks, like might not necessarily be. And especially next season, I don't I can't even predict what I mean, uh, we were deemed essential through the, um, you know, the whole COVID shutdown in New Hampshire, uh, garden centers and nurseries were able to stay open. So we had three times the amount of volume that we usually do there, you know, and we did the best that we could to keep up with the inventory, but it, it, it was near impossible. Even our suppliers sold out faster than they ever would have. And that's, that's continuing on now through um, fall and winter. And I've had more customers in my greenhouse in January than I've ever seen. Um, 
walking through there at, at four o'clock on a Wednesday, you know, I can have 10 people in there shopping for houseplants and that's unheard of for us in January. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, uh, I it, people call and ask and then I hunt is kind of what, what usually happens. I'd say, I'd, I would say grow what you're excited about, you know, visit your local garden center, uh, do a little bit of research in advance or take advantage of the staff that are working there. Use them as a resource. But, uh, you know, don't don't pigeonhole your, yourself either with just growing, you know, one specific thing that you think might be perfect for your, your location. You know, be willing to try a bunch of different things. And, um, yeah, if, if you're really excited about the plant, chances are that you're going to do the research you need to keep that plant really healthy. Yeah, we covered so much. Um, and this has been a really awesome opportunity. I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And thank you guys for reaching out to me um, to do this. And I, I'll say too, you know, I, I see a lot of customers who really want to be plant people, but don't think they are, you know, and anyone can be a plant person. And Emma said it earlier, I, and it was the same for me. I had to kill a lot of plants before I could keep plants alive. I can't tell you how many times I tried to grow an African violet. And now in however long it's been, my African violets are doing great. <laughs> Um, but just, just keep trying, you know, and, and don't hesitate to ask questions. A lot of people, um, will come in the greenhouse and, and, you know, feel like they're bothering me or whatever, but that's what we're here for. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I love the Q and a and, um, and to be able to help customers out and, and learn how to, you know, take care of their plants and, and broaden their experience and stuff. So, um, don't don't hesitate to to utilize us as a resource. And I would echo that for UNH Extension. That's why we're here too. So yeah, everyone out there, don't be afraid to kill plants. Don't be afraid to try new things. And don't be afraid to ask questions either to your cooperative extension, to your favorite garden center. Uh, we're We're all here to help. So yeah, thanks again for coming on, Nicole. This has been really fun. And we'll have to talk some more at some other point about some other aspects of houseplant maintenance. We didn't even get to things like fertilizing, pruning, cleaning, sanitation. We didn't talk about propagation as far as the how-to, and that could be its own episode, frankly. <laughs> so lots of opportunities uh, for, for future topics of discussion. This episode's featured plant is ZZ plant, Zamiococcus zamiafolia. It's one of the best indoor foliage plants I know of for low light environments. ZZ plant is native to dry grasslands and forests in eastern and southern tropical Africa, making it pretty solidly a house plant for New Hampshire. It's a member of the aeroid family, which means it's related to other popular house plants like philodendron, Monstera and Peace Lily. It's distinctive looking in that it is stemless with compound leaves that arise from rhizomes beneath the soil. The leaflets are glossy green and they're attached to fleshy leaf stems that grow to about two to three feet tall. ZZ plant grows really well in bright indirect light, though it will tolerate low light. So it's a, it's a decent plant to have a good ways from a window in your home.
Uh, you should, when you're caring for it, water regularly, but avoid keeping the soil consistently wet. The soil should really be allowed to dry fully between water applications. It, the plant will also do best if you keep it in a room where the temperature is at least 60 degrees. The last thing I'll note is that ZZ plant does grow slowly, but it's easy to keep looking good as long as you're being careful with your watering, occasionally fertilizing it, and giving it a good source of bright indirect light. I'd like to close this episode with a tip on how to clean the leaves of foliage houseplants. Over time, dust and dirt can build up on leaves and block sunlight, limiting a houseplant's ability to photosynthesize. Photosynthesis is, of course, how a houseplant feeds itself, and too much dust can prevent optimal growth. So ultimately, cleaning not only makes your houseplants look better, but it also makes them healthier. Now, how you can do this, there's two ways. First, you can either put your plants in the kitchen sink or shower and run lukewarm water over them. Avoid hot or cold because this can damage leaves. If the plants are really dirty, then they can be sprayed with a diluted dish soap solution, which can then be sprayed off with lukewarm water. Another option, if you have smaller plants, is to use a dusting cloth or a gentle brush to clean individual leaves. Cleaning houseplants doesn't have to take too much work, but it will definitely keep them looking and growing better. Thanks, Emma. Great tips as always. That's going to do it for today's show on foliage houseplants, our sixth episode of Granite State Gardening. Our goal with the Granite State Gardening podcast is to provide trusted, timely, and accessible research-based information to you and fellow gardeners. We've been so appreciative of all the great feedback, suggestions, and questions so far, but keep those emails coming. Our email address is gsg.pod at unh.edu. We're also on social media at Ask UNH Extension, and you can help us grow this new podcast by sharing it with fellow gardeners. And if you're so inclined, giving us a glowing five-star review if the podcast app you're using allows it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Granite State Gardening. Until next time, keep on growing, Granite State Gardeners. Granite State Gardening is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the universities, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.